Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a live killer urban gorilla. I gotta be a roughneck. Free the black panthers. FCBP. Stand for free the black panthers. If up the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, finna build here, up coin tail pro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black on black power moves. You telling lies, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns that's worth the crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters, that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general, King Khalid Muhammad. We gon' make your day a holiday, I fuck me promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. If up the black police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. If up the black police, feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black woman and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up, up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die. NBPP.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no, no other Black Panther Party, we're not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. And the most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police department to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous service unless you commit a crime. We need our own nation. All right. Good day, everyone. I know you're joining us from many different time zones across the globe. 
I'm Catherine Amerfar, President of the American Society of International Law, and it is my great privilege to help welcome you today. The Society is absolutely thrilled to be co-sponsoring this remarkable event with the University of the West Indies, home to the Center for Reparation Research, which has played a key role in facilitating this symposium, together with the Blacks of the American Society of International Law Task Force. I want to take a moment to also especially thank the Symposium Organizing Committee responsible for helping us put this together, comprised of Natalie Reed and Chantal Thomas as co-chairs, and members Claudio Grossman, Patricia Sellers, T. Michael Pay, Vereen Shepard, Gabrielle Hemmings, and Floyd Williams. Thank you all for the hard work in putting together this important program. It goes without saying that the current moment has brought into stark relief issues of racial inequality that have deep historical roots and which continue to plague contemporary society all over the world. That larger conversation has brought renewed focus to the question of reparations for the enslavement of Africans, including the transatlantic trade in enslaved Africans. ASIL and the UWI are uniquely positioned to convene eminent scholars and practitioners from across the globe to illuminate these issues through rigorous examination and discussion of international law, economic and social history, and the current debate and efforts regarding reparations. Over the course of these two half days, we'll hear from more than two dozen leading experts on a range of topics, including the legal status of enslavement during and prior to the 19th century, the legacy of enslavement in contemporary society, and the challenges related to obtaining reparations under international law. This symposium is convened and is really the brainchild of Judge Patrick Robinson, who I'm so proud to work with as the honorary president of ASIL, and I'm privileged to introduce him today. Judge Robinson, of course, will be well known to all of you. He's an eminent judge of the International Court of Justice. He previously served as a judge and then president of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, as well as a member of the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights and the International Law Commission. While unfortunately we could not all be in Jamaica together in person for this special event, this program has special meaning and roots in Jamaica. Judge Robinson was educated at Jamaica College, University of the West Indies, and later the University of London and King's College, London. Following his call to the bar in 1968, Judge Robinson had a long and distinguished career in public service, working for the Jamaican government for over three decades. He is the recipient of the National Award Order of Jamaica, awarded by the government of Jamaica for services to international law, and holds several honorary doctorate degrees, including from the University of the West Indies. Judge Robinson, you are an inspiration. He's known for his wonderfully wicked sense of humor, and he's a personal hero. Judge, over to you. Thank you very much, um, Catherine. And may I say good afternoon, good evening, good night, and good morning. Ladies and gentlemen, I do not wish any participant to feel disadvantaged. And I assure you I'm not in the employment of the Jamaica Tourist Board, but I can't help but tell you that I am speaking from bright and sunny Jamaica. And our topic 
this afternoon and tomorrow afternoon is the reparations that are due for transatlantic chattel slavery. Ladies and gentlemen, one does not have to be a devotee of the Olympics of the oppressed to be able to agree that transatlantic chattel slavery as an atrocity exemplifying man's inhumanity to man has never been surpassed. And no doubt it is the extent of the severity of this crime and its consequences that explain why the two political parties in Jamaica notorious for never agreeing on anything, were able to set aside their differences and in 2015 unanimously adopted a parliamentary resolution that the government of Jamaica was entitled on behalf of the former slaves in accordance with the basic tenets of labor law and human rights to receive payment from Great Britain equivalent to some pay to the British slave owners as compensation for the loss of slave labor. Ladies and gentlemen, as an atrocity, transatlantic chattel slavery was striking for its duration of over 400 years, unmatched for its barbarity, demonstrated in the 18th century by the Englishman Thomas Thistlewood, whose favorite punishment for a runaway slave from his Jamaican plantation was to coerce one of the enslaved to defecate in the mouth of the runaway, whose mouth was then gagged for about three hours. A more cruel and sadistic punishment has never been devised. Unmatched for its sheer scale and magnitude, demonstrated first by the length of the pernicious triangular voyage that covered a distance of over 12,000 miles. Second, by the number of persons enslaved, over 15 million. And third, by the number of those killed, over 6 million, a figure based on those who died on abduction, on the trek to, and during internment in the slave castles and then those who died in the Middle Passage and from toiling on the plantation. Unmatched for its modern-day consequences, all too evident in every country with descendants of the enslaved. Unmatched for its profitability, manifested in the fact that in 1754, the average white person in Jamaica was 
52 times wealthier than the average person in England and Wales. And that the compensation money paid to the planters by Britain for the loss of their property on emancipation, 20 million pounds, started a second industrial revolution in Britain after 1835. And in effect, as we know, this sum was provided by an additional four years of unpaid labor by the enslaved in the so-called period of emancipation, of apprenticeship following emancipation in 1834. Ladies and gentlemen, this symposium concerns the question of the reparations that may be due for transatlantic chattel slavery. No, there were many forms of servile labor in Europe and in Africa. But the symposium focuses on the kind of enslavement to which West Africans were subjected for over 400 years in the Americas and the Caribbean. That is transatlantic chattel slavery. And as you well know, and if you don't know, you will learn from the symposium, transatlantic chattel slavery was wholly different from other kinds of servile labor, whether in Europe or in Africa. While the Jamaican parliament seeks reparations in respect of those who were enslaved in Jamaica, the scope of the symposium is global. The global examination of transatlantic chattel slavery sets the stage for an examination of reparations at a global level. Over the past years, several institutions in the United States of America and elsewhere have paid reparations for transatlantic chattel slavery to compensate for benefits they derived from the free and forced labor of the enslaved centuries ago. One welcomes these initiatives. I certainly welcome them. But in my view, it would be better to have reparations organized on a more systematic basis to replace the occasional payment of reparations. And my hope is that this symposium, organized by the American Society of International Law and the University of the West Indies, will lead to such an approach. Although the symposium primarily adopts a period-by-period, century-by-century approach in its examination of the wrongfulness of transatlantic chattel slavery. One speaker, Dr. Nora Whitman, will offer a more global analysis, and she is well set 
to make such a presentation. She is a scholar who has devoted much attention to this question. We will also hear in that regard from Dr. Mamadou Hebi, who is a lecturer at Leiden University in International Law, Parvati Menon of the University of Helsinki, and Dr. Michel Erpelding of the Max Planck Institute. There will also be a discourse on sexualized practices of the slave trade and slavery, as well as a presentation about reparations in Brazil by Dr. Umberto Adami, the special rapporteur in his country on that subject. I should have mentioned that the discourse on sexualized practices will be made by Dr. Patricia Sellers. And I'm very pleased to inform you that Professor Claudio Grossman, my former colleague on the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights and now a member of the International Law Commission, will speak on remedies for gross breaches of international law, such as transatlantic chattel slavery. And ladies, since the consequences of transatlantic chattel slavery are very much present today, we will have two presentations on contemporary racism as the legacy of enslavement. And we are very fortunate to have two very distinguished international lawyers presenting to us on this subject. There is Professor E. Tendai Ashiyume, and she is the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Racism. And Professor Philippe Sands of the University College London. Professor Sands is a well-known international lawyer and litigator in various international dispute settlement bodies, including the International Court of Justice. The 1921 Tulsa Massacre is a notorious example of racism in the United States of America. Professor Eric Miller, who is part of the legal team that has instituted proceedings in the United States courts seeking reparations for the massacre, will make a pre presentation on this subject. Now, ladies and gentlemen, coincidence of coincidences, by an amazing stroke of serendipity, where do you think Professor Miller was yesterday? Professor Miller, who is my cousin, testified yesterday before the U.S. House Judiciary Committee's hearing on the centennial of the massacre. And he took with him two persons, ages 107 
and 100 years who are survivors of the massacre. We look forward to what is going to be a very interesting presentation by Professor Miller. Sir Hilary Beckers, a distinguished economic historian, will make a presentation on the historical context in which the business of transatlantic chattel slavery was carried out. He will also present a global quantification of the reparations that are due for transatlantic slavery. Ladies and gentlemen, you may well ask about the reparations that are due under international law for transatlantic chattel slavery. Please wait and see. I will make the last presentation and my topic will be the ascertainment of a rule of international law condemning transatlantic chattel slavery. Ladies and gentlemen, it is perfectly feasible to seek reparations for transatlantic chattel slavery on moral grounds because it is beyond dispute that it constituted a wholly immoral act. However, the symposium adopts a different approach. It examines whether transatlantic chattel slavery was wrongful conduct under international law. In carrying out that examination, one has to bear in mind the intertemporal rule that requires that the wrongfulness be determined on the basis of the law at the time transatlantic chattel slavery was carried out. It is the wrongfulness of transatlantic chattel slavery that provides the legal basis for reparations. Ladies and gentlemen, the consequences of chattelization of West Africans for over a period of some 450 years are very evident in every single country in the world that has descendants of the enslaved. And to illustrate this, we need look no further than the United States of America. On many occasions, when a black male or female driver of a motor vehicle is pulled over by the police, the chattelization to which his or her forebears were subjected comes immediately into play and that person is treated as a chattel, no longer saleable, but still a thing, less than human, and not warranting respect for his or her inherent dignity, the basis for all human rights. 
I am to let you know that it is perfectly proper for you to ask questions of the presenters after their presentation. And for that purpose, you will use hashtag INT law reparations. Ladies and gentlemen, the first speaker on the first topic needs no introduction, but a word or two is still in order. Sir Hilary Beckles is the Vice Chancellor of the University of the West Indies, a university that is in the top 5% of universities in the world. He has had a distinguished career as an academic and has written several books. For our purposes, if you haven't read already, you should read Britain's Black Death, as well as a book he co-authored with Vereen Shepard, Saving Souls, The Struggle to End the Transatlantic Trade in Africa. In 2013, Sir Hillary was invited to coordinate Caribbean government's policy positions on the global reparatory justice conversation. And in this capacity, he was appointed chair of the CARICOM Reparations Commission. And under his guidance, the University of the West Indies established the Center for Reparations research. May I therefore ask you to ask Sir Hillary to address you on the topic, the historical context in which the business of transatlantic chattel slavery was carried out. Sir Hillary, you have the floor. Thank you very much. And allow me to say at the outset what a tremendous honor it is to be a part of this seminal symposium and to express my gratitude to Judge Robinson for this invitation to join you in, in conversation. Many years ago, too many years to recall, I chose to submit as a PhD proposal, the issues surrounding the economics of the rise of chattel slavery. I was 21 years old at the time and didn't know what I was getting into in terms of the broader implications of this. But I understood then, even as a teenager, from reading the literature, 
that there were several competing options available to Western colonial adventurers entering the New World. And those options that were clearly available uh, had relative merits. The Western European complex expanding across the Atlantic into the Americas uh, in search of labor in order to carry out major projects in agriculture and in mining uh, and, and other forms of economic development extraction, these options of labor would have included the transportation of the European working class across the Atlantic in the form of indenture contracts, contracts of indentured labor, or they could seek to mobilize by various forms of coercion the use of indigenous Native American labor, and also available to them was access to West Africa in order to extract oppressed, coerced labor into production. My task as a graduate, as a doctorate student, was to account for the ultimate choice after a hundred years of experimentation by various European countries, initially Spain, then uh, the Portuguese and Brazil. So the Spanish uh, in the Caribbean and Mexico, parts of Latin America, then the Portuguese uh, in Brazil, followed by the English, Dutch, French, and Danish, and the Nordic nations and other European countries uh, subsequently. But they were all mixed and commingling different forms of labor. Within an ideological pedagogy, that was at once consistent with their own national systems of labor and innovating and initiating new systems of legal labor relations within their colonies that were departures from systems of labor which were indigenous to their own European context. The issue around the genocide that followed the use of indigenous American labor is well known. The Spanish and the Portuguese developed various forms of contract systems because they felt that given their own labor history uh, in Spain and Portugal, 
that chattel slavery would have been resisted domestically by the Catholic Church, by prominent individuals in civil society. And there was indeed this ambivalence, to some extent reticence, about whether the indigenous dominated, oppressed, conquered populations of the Americas could be driven to chattel slavery. And in the end, it was the established norm that this should not be the case. Of course, there were always individuals who pushed beyond that prescription and did participate in developing a property chattel relationship to the indigenous people, but by and large, uh, this was not initially the norm. When the Protestant nations entered the New World, the Caribbean especially, the English, the Dutch, the French, the Danish primarily, they too began with an experiment around the use of their own domestic labor from Europe transported across the Atlantic in the forms of indentured servitude. My own PhD dissertation dealt with the extensive use of white indentured labor from Britain in the Caribbean in the formative years of colonization. So that would be Barbados, Jamaica, the Leeward Islands, Virginia, the Carolinas, Pennsylvania, New York. And I explored back then the economics of that choice, that it was cheaper and more productive and sustainable to import working class labor to initiate production on the plantations. And as a result of that, hundreds of thousands of workers from Britain were transported to work on the sugar plantations on the contracts of indenture. And a typical contract of indenture was that you would, the, the investor in your labor would pay for your transportation across the Atlantic, provide housing for you on the plantation, but you were on the contract to work for between seven to 10 years of, of labor on that plantation. And at the end of your contract of indenture, you were given a small sum of money to launch you into your freedom or a piece of land to launch you as an independent person. That was a model that was chosen to lay the foundation. Because the Protestant nations were not yet, and that included the French, but they were Catholic also, did not possess the economic resources in order to make a massive investment in the African transatlantic slave trade. But within two generations of this model, it became perfectly clear that it was not sustainable. 
that neither the indigenous people of the Caribbean, the native people, that that was sustainable for the big project of colonization, neither could working class labor, whether they were voluntary indentures, whether they were exported and deported convict laborers, whether they were the working class poor who were considered dependent upon the state and therefore subject to roundup and deportation. And that was how you got a trade in white labor, convicts, political prisoners, working class poor, the dependent upon the state working class poor, local cities were given authority to round them up and ship them out to work on the plantation. But that system proved to be unsustainable given the enormity of this project, which was going to be the rise of plantation America, whether in the form of sugar production in the Caribbean, cotton production in the U.S. South, or rice or other agricultural products. The magnitude of what was conceptualized, the enormity of the project of plantation expansion as the basis of sustaining and growing wealth in Europe, that the enormity of this project required a massive pool of labor that was sustainable over hundreds of years. And that is when the gaze, that is when the gaze of Western Europe, looking at the future of the enterprise of colonization and the notion that this colonization must generate an economic return of great magnitude in order to be worth it. In other words, Europe was not going to undertake this project unless this project was going to be profitable, unless the profitability was going to be sustainable, and whether the sustained profits were going to lead to enormous increase in wealth, economic growth, and economic development in Europe itself. So the macroeconomics of this was determined and it was agreed upon. And that the only way this was going to work was to have access to another pool of labor from Africa outside of their own traditions of labor that could be justified and enabled to be sustainable. This was an enormous, significant decision. And it took place first in the Caribbean in a highly organized way. It had emerged in Brazil, but in Brazil, it has spread across the northeast part of that colony, but where it reached its full maturation as an economic model and system was in the Caribbean, and in the Caribbean, it was Barbados, because Barbados was the center of the British Empire in the Americas in the early part of the 17th century. Barbados was colonized, an empty island, a place where England could begin with no indigenous resistance, an open island, and they could begin the new enterprise. And Barbados is where they started. The first act in 1636, just 10 years after colonization, the Barbados Assembly passed a proclamation that said for the first time anywhere in the Americas, from today, 
and henceforth, any person of Africa or African descent who arrives in this colony shall be deemed a slave forever and their ownership defined as the ownership of property. And that property right shall be passed on from generation to generation. And there shall be no constraints or restraints in respect of the use of that person who is now defined as property. That was seismic. Because the English and Barbados were making these massive investments in sugar plantations and the technology of plantation production, the sugar mill, with all of the sophisticated engineering of the time, large tracts of land rolled out into sugar estates. And the investor was making this huge investment in land and technology and labor. The average plantation, let's say it was 500 acres, required at least 300 enslaved Africans to make it work efficiently. The average price of an enslaved African at that time was 30 to 40 pounds, male and female. So your, the value of your enslaved labor was more than the value of the land. And therefore, investors, entrepreneurs wanted to be sure that their investment in labor, in African labor, was that associated with property, real estate, and chattel. And they demanded that from the government, and the government gave it to them as the security for their entrepreneurial effort in massive capital investment and profitability. Twenty years later, the Barbados legislature set this all out in an act for the good governance of Negroes. And in this act, which was innovative, it was the first of its kind, the Barbados, the English in Barbados, the English enslavers made it clear that they were framing a piece of legislation, not just for domestic management, but for the region and the world. And it began with the usual preamble. And whereas the Africans are seen as a barbarous, inhumane people, a brutish people, not fit to be governed under the laws of Christians, which sets them apart, but a special set of laws required for their governance, be it therefore ordained, blah, blah, blah. The preamble to the act made it clear that Africans were not human, at best subhuman, but the laws that were going to be used to govern them were precise because African peoples could not be governed under the same laws as Christians because Christians were deemed as white and therefore the Africans were subhuman, non-human. 
and therefore requires special forms of laws. Thus, the so-called slave laws were about the management of chattel. And thus, the Africans were defined as property with all of the normal rights of property that were expected. What were the property rights? You could buy it, you could sell, you could mortgage, you could use it as currency, you can use it as collateral, you can pass it on in wills, all of you, you can use it to pay taxes and you were taxed by owning it. All of these normal expressions of what is property and chattel were applied to the Africans. That is the meaning of chattelization. It could be bought, sold, mortgaged, bequeathed, all of those functions. And of course, you had no human identity. The Barbados model was then exported across the Caribbean by the British. And those laws were eventually taken to South Carolina. South Carolina becomes the American colony that first implements the Caribbean model. And this is why South Carolina became the first colony in English America with a black majority. And this is why South Carolina is seen as the heart of slavery in the U.S. South. And this explains also why South Carolina is considered by some people to be one of the most racist states in the U.S. South, because of that legacy of being the first state to embrace chattel slavery, to implement chattel slavery, and to develop African enslaved people as the social majority uh, in the colony. Now, while this was being done, it was necessary, therefore, to it was necessary, therefore, to remove other forms of competing labor. And to that end, a very important development took place in the British Parliament. Two white indentured servants somehow were able to spirit a letter out of Barbados into England and was taken before the House of Commons under the Cromwellian rule. It was called a petition of two indentured servants, Mr. Floyd and Mr. Rivers, who are asking for justice against their white enslavement in the Caribbean. And the English House of Commons met to hear this petition. And they determined that what they had heard about white people being treated like, like slaves in Barbados and in the Caribbean was unacceptable. And Cromwell made a great speech. And she said, you know, the history of the English people is the history of the gradual freeing of the lower orders. And if we are going to reverse our history by enslaving white people in the colonies, then that has to be stopped because it would make us men most miserable. And thus, the parliamentary process of uprooting chattels, uh, uprooting any evidence of white slavery, putting it aside that white people, white workers must never be treated like African workers. That system of white oppression must end, and therefore they got permission to eradicate white indentured servitude from the Caribbean and have it replaced completely by African chattel slavery. 
So we have the evidence in the English Parliament of a direct political instruction to eradicate white servitude and replace it with black chattel slavery as the model for the modern world. And to this end, they have subsequently. Chattel slavery then became the standard model of colonization, that Africans could be bought and sold on the market. But I should say this also. At the time of the implementation of chattel slavery, its regionalization and its application across the Americas and the wider world, there were many organizations and many people in Europe who were fighting against this activity. There was a strong civil society movement that said the chattelization of the African people is morally wrong. It is sinful and unchristian. So there were movements within civil society that were pointing to the criminal nature of chattel slavery, that it was criminal, sinful, and moral. And it's interesting that when the Emancipation Act was being passed in Britain, that those same groups of people, 200 years later, were making the same argument, that the time has come to stop chattel slavery because it is criminal, sinful, and moral, and Christian. And the same arguments were used at the beginning, and the same arguments were used at the end. So the question is, why were these arguments not effective at the beginning, and why they were effective at the end? They were not effective at the beginning, because the British state, the state, haven't listened, haven't listened to the competing arguments took the decision that chattel slavery was in the national interest. And all of those persons and groups who opposed it were opposed to the national interest of England seeking to become the richest nation in Europe, raising its capital, raising its funds to build an army, to build a powerful state so it could compete and threaten France and the Netherlands and other competing countries. And the only way England was going to transcend militarily above other European countries is if it had access to an, a form of wealth that would give it that capacity. And the only way they could get that wealth was chattel slavery and plantation development. And therefore, it was in the national interest. And all of those voices were brushed aside. Even when Wilberforce, William Wilberforce, sought to use those arguments, the King of England, King William, threatened him. Mr. Wilberforce, be careful with what you are saying about slavery. Be careful. This institution is needed to promote England as a globally competitive economic nation. Be careful what you are saying. A veiled threat to anyone who stood up against it on grounds that it was criminal, sinful, immoral, unchristian. So we come to the end of this process where the Emancipation Act embraced all of those arguments. Yes, it was sinful, it was criminal, it was immoral, and therefore we have to end it and end it now, primarily because the nation no longer needed it. It had served its purpose. 
It has made England into the wealthiest country in Europe, if not in the world. England becomes the first industrial country because it had the finance coming from slavery to build the factories and the cities and the towns. The inflow of investments coming from the colonies and slavery, the process had reached uh, a terminal moment. England had won, had emerged as the most powerful country in Europe. The enslaved people did act for reparations. When the act was being passed, they said, how about us? Our labor was stolen from us for centuries. We should receive compensation. We want reparations. The British government told them to be silent. To be silent, you have no voice. And that you should be grateful that we are freeing you. So whatever reparations you think you should have, you are getting it in the form of the freedom that we are giving you. The enslaved then responded, you take our labor by military conquest. You enslave us against our will. We fought against you to demonstrate that we have not accepted your imposition. Every generation of enslaved people revolted. The Caribbean became a military theater. Rebellions after rebellions, a black revolutionary movement against slavery, proof that there was no acceptance of it. We want reparations, and they were told to be silent. The movement is now here again. And what I want to say to you by way of conclusion, that between the emancipation legislation of the 1830s and today, there were at least six or seven major spikes and the demand for reparations. So the enslaved demanded it. The first generation of free Africans demanded reparations. And from then until today, every generation has been asking for reparations. So reparations is, an, is one of the oldest political movements in the Caribbean that began John slavery, continued after emancipation, and is now back on the agenda big time once again, 200 years of the demand for this, all the way into the present moment. And finally, there have been two approaches to the demand for what is called reparations. There are those calculations that are based upon wealth extraction from enforced labor. Many calculations are based on this, on this notion. Let us say, for example, in the case of Britain, which is the case I know well, the British would enslave, let's say they have enslaved six million Africans, uh, both imported and those Creole who were born on their planting. What if you take each adult and pay them the wage that you would have paid the lowest paid worker in Britain, how much back pay would you have to deal with? Let us say you're paying the workers back in England on the agricultural estates three pence a day. Make that calculation for the millions of Africans who you've got free labor, free labor from six million people for 200 years. If you had to do a calculation, what would it come like? The figure was staggering when the calculation was done by a group of economists in the city of London. 
the figure they came up with was larger than the gross domestic income of England. It was larger than the gross national product of England. It was somewhere in the area of six, six trillion pounds or something like that. Just as an indicator of how much value you had extracted from enslaving six million people against their will for 200 years without paying them a wage. Then you have other calculations that have said, well, we don't want to deal with it in those terms. What we are saying is that that period of enslavement of wealth extraction and colonization have left the people of the Caribbean who are the descendants of that process in the depth of poverty. And the poverty has translated into mass illiteracy, extreme public ill health. And when you look at the black population today in the Caribbean, if you use the, the criterion or the marker of chronic diseases, hypertension, diabetes, if you take that marker of chronic diseases and apply it across the world, the black people in the Caribbean are the sickest people in the world because the descendants of the enslaved people in the Caribbean have the highest per capita expression of diabetes and hypertension. And this is why today the first two major slave societies, the first two major slave societies, Barbados and Jamaica, are now competing for the title amputation capital of the world because there is no place in the world with the kind of expression of diabetic, diabetic computation challenges resulting from diabetes. The amputation of limbs, complications from type 2 diabetes, complications from diabetes. Barbados and Jamaica have the highest percentage of amputations per capita in the world. Because the correlation between that medical fact and the fact that Barbados and Jamaica were the first two significant chattelization economies in the world. When these countries became independent in the 1960s, 70 to 80% of the people of African descent could not read or write. The Europeans walked away, Britain walked away, said, you want independence, we'll have it. But they wanted independence because they wanted to get away from the brutalization, the brutalization of the colonial imperial exploiter. They wanted freedom from them. But in so grasping that freedom, were left abandoned with circumstances of public ill health massive illiteracy, and quite frankly, an inability to pursue economic development in an orderly fashion. But they did it. They pursued it. And through their efforts, they were able to convert the, 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 the crudity of a colony, the barbarity of a colony, and convert it into a democratic nation. And they have done very well to build a democratic sensibility out of the crudity of a colony. They did it. But the question remains, 
what if they were paid reparations? Would Jamaica and Barbados and all of these other colonies not be further ahead in their economic growth, poverty eradication, their modern culture and civilization, but they were left to struggle on their own, to struggle on their own to build out the basic infrastructure for democracy from the crudity of a colony. They were left to do it alone. And this is why the reparations movement is also looking not so much at how much cash or how much is required to compensate labor, but what is required to promote the development of democratic society and economy today out of the rubble of an abandoned colony. That is also a part of it. And so, colleagues, then, the movement from this criminal chattel culture that became the basis of American colonization, the enrichment of the American nation when it finally emerged, and Europe cascading today into black communities, whether in Alabama, whether in Mississippi, whether in Barbados and Jamaica, the Bahamas, wherever these black people were chattelized, those societies and communities have remained impoverished, racially oppressed, dominated by white minorities in the economy and the society. The legacy, the legacy of chattelization is palpable today all around us. And every person of African descent who have been a part of the rise of democracy and civil rights and human rights have been fighting against the headwind of the legacy of slavery. And it is only a repertory justice movement that can bring an end to this. And I have said it once, and I will say it again, finally, here today, this reparations movement is going to be the greatest political movement of the 21st century. It's going to be the greatest political movement of the 21st century. And there's nothing that can stop it because it's embedded in the search for justice, equality, and democracy in the 21st century. And it took us, our ancestors, all of the 19th century to uproot chattel slavery. From the Haitians who first took that step, from the Haitians all the way through eventually to Brazil and Cuba, the Spanish and the Portuguese who started it, were the last to end it. So between Haiti in 1804 and Brazil and Cuba in the 1880s, that was a hundred years of effort to uproot chattel slavery. Then it took us all of the 20th century to convert those legal freedoms into social and political freedoms, the human rights, the civil rights. We lost, we lost all of our greatest advocates Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Mega Evers. You can go all the way through to Nelson Mandela. We lost our finest and brightest intellectual leaders of democracy. We lost them because of this 20th century struggle for human rights and civil rights. Every black community in the world paid a very dear price for civil rights and human rights. But here we are now at the 21st century. And we are saying, the next stage is our repertory justice rights. And if it takes us all of the 21st century to litigate it, generation after generation are going to fight for repertory justice rights 
in all of the 21st century if we have to, and much the same way we fought all of the 20th century for the right to vote, for civil rights, and human rights. This is endemic to our journey to justice. And it's not going to end until that justice is attained. I thank you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, on your behalf, I want to thank Sir Hillary for that stirring address. Among the many things that impressed me in the address was his comment on the search for justice, because this essentially is what reparations is about. It's a search for justice. But Sir Hillary, I wanted to um, raise with you a couple matters. The first has to do with chattelization. In law, a chattel is movable um, property. And we certainly saw elements of that movement in transatlantic slavery. The West Africans were moved from their homes to the Americas and the Caribbean some 5,000, 6,000 miles away. And it is because they were chattels in law and in fact why they were subject to that kind of movement. So I see chattelization as the central element of transatlantic slavery. It had several phases. Chattelization started with capture and enslavement. It started with the trek to the slave castles on the coast, included the internment of the West Africans, their detention in those castles. Then they had the Middle Passage, notorious for its barbarities. And then you had the sale of the West Africans on the auction block once they had arrived in the Americas and the Caribbean. And the final stage, which is the sixth stage, is the forced unpaid labor on the plantation. Every phase in my submission constituted wrongful conduct. You do not have to confine yourself to the phases that were in West Africa. It is perfectly legitimate to look at all the other phases and to see what they exhibited. So that in my view, West Africans were chattelized in West Africa. So enslavement did not begin 
on their sale on the auction block in the Americas and the Canada. They had already been enslaved. And all six phases are phases of chattelization, the central element of transatlantic slavery. I wanted your views on, on that, that approach. The evidence is quite clear that the military process of conquest leading to capture ultimately to dehumanization and anti-humanization were the underpinnings of the chattel outcome. The chattel outcome was a legal and judicial product. But before the legal and judicial came the military and the political and the sociological. In other words, conquest, violent conquering, capturing, and in that process of capturing, kidnapping, warfare, creating a pool of portable humans where the market economics had already said, yes, this pool of conquered, captured, dehumanized labor, stripped of rights, stripped of identity and military conquest. And the notion in Western Europe that was quite established by then, that you do not enslave your own kind. You might oppress them, you might extract labor from them, you might brutalize them in the labor process, but you do not enslave your own kind. That point was established in labor history and constitutional and political history in Western Europe well into the 13th and 14th century. One of the great novels you may recall by Thomas, uh, by Thomas Hardy, the mayor of Casterbridge, who was forced to look at the issue of what would happen to an English person if they were stripped of their political and social and cultural rights and put into a slave-like environment. Western Europe had turned its back upon the notion of enslaving your own time. And therefore, the paradigm was fully matured by the time the Western Europeans arrived in West Africa, that the Africans were the other. And that with military conquest, with violent control and domination, that they could be stripped of their human rights, they could be chattelized and dehumanized. And part of that is what we are talking about. So by the time that labor force, those Africans were transported across the Atlantic, the politics and the constitutional aspects were already quite matured and the market economy was quite prepared. If you could ship them across the Atlantic if you could lose 20 to 30% of them in the shipment, and that was considered collateral damage, if you could lose a quarter of them in shipment, eight weeks of borage in locks and chains, but you can still get 10 years of labor out of them, you could still make a large profit because you had to ship them, insure them, you have to measure the cost, you have to feed them, and on arrival, then you had to get 10 years of labor. That's all you needed. And you could make a very handsome profit. 
And that was what this was about. This was about how to make a very handsome profit out of human beings who had been stripped of all human rights and identity. And that was enforced by the laws of the conqueror. So when we speak about what was legal and what was not legal, we're not talking about uh, an international dialogue. We're talking about Western European nations going to their parliaments and using their judicial systems to create the context of a series of laws that enable this system to work and enable it to work even though the people who are subject to those laws are violently opposed to them. And that massive set of rebellions and revolutions across the Caribbean and across the slave society, this was the African people saying, we reject, we do not accept, and we are going to overthrow these systems of dehumanization. So it is enforced unilaterally. The first description we have in the records, in the written records, by an African who is describing enslavement, described Barbados in the 17th century, quote unquote, as a place worse than hell, because they couldn't, the Africans could not imagine chattelization of that kind. They could not imagine it. But for them, it was a it was a hellish place beyond their comprehension. They had never seen or experienced anything like chattelization. And that is the first record we have, a place worse than hell was their description of what a chattelized society actually looked like. That, I think, speaks for itself. The voice of the Africans, the actions of the Africans, they speak for themselves. Thank you very much, um, Sir Hillary. I'm advised that um, we are out of time. And so once again, on behalf of the symposium, I want to express my gratitude, gratitude to you for the address. Very, very enlightening and very, very informative and uplifting. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you. Uh, we now have a break of 10 minutes, of 10 minutes. I didn't get to um, Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Vereen Shepard, Director of the UWI's Center for Reparation Research and the moderator of this panel. Welcome to panel one of this international symposium on reparations under international law for enslavement of African persons in the Americas and the Caribbean. 
We started the symposium with stimulating addresses by the convener, His Excellency Patrick Robinson, Honorary President of the American Society of International Law, the co-sponsor, along with UWI, as well as by the Vice-Chancellor of the University of the West Indies, Professor Sir Hilary Beckel. We will now hear from our two panelists, Dr. Nora Whitman and Dr. Mamadou Hebi, who will explore the theme, examining, um, <laughs> quote unquote, illegality, legality and illegality of transatlantic chattel enslavement under international law. This is part one. Let me introduce Dr. Whitman to you. She is an independent scholar holding a doctorate in international law and a master's in social and cultural anthropology from the University of Vienna. Her PhD thesis was on international legal responsibility and reparations for transatlantic slavery. She served as a member of the Scientific Council of MIR, which in English is the International Movement for Reparations, and it operates out of Martinique, which launched the first court procedure for reparations against the European state that is currently being examined by the European Court of Human Rights. And she's the author of two books. The first one that everybody, I think, will know is Reparations Time is Now, Exposing Lies, Claiming Justice for Global Survival, and International Legal Assessment. Our second panelist is Dr. Mamadou Hebi, who will present on transatlantic chattel slavery, 1450 to 1550. Dr. Hebe is Associate Professor of International Law at Leiden University, Reuters Center for International Legal Studies. He holds a PhD with high commendations and a diploma in advanced studies with a specialization in international law from the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies. He also graduated from Harvard Law School, LLM Class of 2012, and the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights. LLM class of 2005, and is a recipient of the Diplomas of the Hague Academy of International Law, that was in 2010, and the International Institute of Human Rights in 2009. I give the floor now to Dr. Nora Whitman for her 15-minute presentation on global assessment of the legality of transatlantic chattel slavery. Dr. Whitman, you have the floor. Muted. You're muted, Dr. Whitman, if you could unmute. <laughs> we can hear you. Yeah. You have the floor. All right. Greetings. Good evening and good day to everyone. Thank you, Professor Shepard. Um, thank you, Professor Beckles, Judge Robinson, all of the organizers. Thank you for making this possible and for having me. So in my presentation, I will attempt at a global assessment of the legal statutes of transatlantic chattel slavery. Um, as we know, the dominant opinion um, that alleges that transatlantic slavery would have been legal um, informs the reparation debate fundamentally. And as we also know, um, this dominant denial of the right to reparations for slavery re relies fundamentally on two premises. One, um, the important and ancient principle of non-retroactivity in international law uh, holds that facts must be judged by the law enforced at the time that a conduct um, happened. 
The second premise and connected to the first is that it is asserted that transatlantic slavery would have been legal. Um, so it is because of the principle of non-retroactivity that the clarification of the legal status is so important also. Um, to begin with, I just want to make it clear that um, we cannot rely on the, on the perpetrator's assessment to decide the legal status of a crime and violation of law. We have to look further and seek to research um, pertinently and from a perspective, in this case, that is um, consciously non-Eurocentric, um, but rather committed to science and search for truth. Um, in international, international law also at that time, of course, was not European law. And to recognize that and draw the consequences um, is in itself, I think, also a very small, but still a part of reparations. Um, and though the European laws have to be taken into account also, they cannot be the main determinative factor of the international regulation on this question. Um, Africans were participating in the formation and development of international law up to the disruption of transatlantic slavery, at, at least as much as the global minority of Europeans. For example, that is something that goes far back. The treaty concluded between Ramses II of Egypt and the Hittite king um, Hattusilis III regarded their consensual obligations as legally binding and accepted that any breach of that treaty involved the duty to make reparations. So in African legal traditions, um, generally speaking, reparations had, a, had an important place and the focus of that was on restoring harmony. So, and I want to briefly look into the state of African laws at the time concerned. Um, and before on the issue of slavery and southern labor. Um, fundamentally, at no time did so-called African slaves have their ears cut off. The name of, of their master was not um, iron-branded on them. They were not cruelly tortured for minor so-called infractions or roasted alive, facial, um, body-spiked um, gibbet cages. All of that was totally unknown um, in Africa, as were all of the other barbarities that were really constitutive um, of the system of terror that was transatlantic slavery. Um, African masters also did, not, did not have the right um, over life and death, and the so-called African slaves were recognized to have certain human rights, such as the right to life and the right to, to fair treatment. Um, in fact, multiple scholars, such as Professor um, Joseph Inikori, have retraced that several institutions approximating chattel slavery were new in tropical Africa, and that, that, that um, their development was linked to the growth of transatlantic enslavement and the associated chaos and violence brought upon the continent. Um, as, as elsewhere, for example, also in China and India, the legally permissible means of enslavement were restricted to captivity in a just war, uh, self-bondage, punishment for certain crimes, and in some societies, um, inheritance of servile status. Um, so the people who are sometimes um, eagerly qualified by some as so-called um, African slaves were not, not submitted to the dehumanization that was intrinsic to the transatlantic slavery system. And if it would be in a European context, they would be um, defined, qualified as servile laborers. 
What was common and legal in Africa was the exchange be between sovereigns, between rulers of small quantities of captives. Again, that, that were um, criminals or captives, captives from just wars, so-called just wars, that is um, reglemented to both in Africa and in Europe. And um, so this was common in both Africa and Europe. And that is also what African rulers were consenting to when the first Europeans came to Africa to acquire slaves. In that case, the first that were the Europeans, um, but they did not keep to these agreements with the, the, the in that case, Congolese um, authorities. Thus, King Afonso I of Congo sent a letter of protest to his Portuguese um, homologue, John III, in 1526 and complained that, quote, um, thieves and men of evil conscience um, take, up, take his people away to where, quote, again, the country is utterly depopulated. And even prior to this, King Afonso had established courts of inquiry designated to investigate um, the illegal enslavement that was happening. But still, through all of this, the Portuguese did not desist from, from the illicit conduct. And after King Afonso died, they even enslaved his family and um, then instigated secession wars um, by arming insurgents. In the same way, all the available evidence suggests that, especially in the first decades and centuries, African rulers actively resisted slavery, whereas with the advancing of time, it was the collaborators who gained an upper hand with the use of European firearms. So as um, Professor Silwen Duke showed in her book, Fighting the Slave Trade, West African Strategies, and as Professor Shepard and Professor Beckles showed in their book, Saving Souls, um, chattel enslavement was an unfamiliar system of social, social oppression to African people, as testified by the many, many documented instances of resistance against it which are also, for example, um, recorded in the, in, the, in the records of the, of the English Royal African Company. Um, also, that is just another example of the, of the many instances of resistance from the early 16th century onwards. It is documented that ships belonging to an African fraternity patrolled in the Gulf of Guinea um, and that they attacked um, European slave vessels to free, free the people that um, were taken away. Another example, Queen Singer of Angola, she federated the region into the United Provinces in the late 16th century and maintained the resistance against the Portuguese enslavers for 30 years. But uh, sadly, this too was defeated through the European strategy of identifying and arming collaborators. Um, and it is because of all this well-documented resistance that the contributors to the, UNE to the UNESCO General History of Africa agree that um, transatlantic slavery, that, that the deprivation of sovereignty through transatlantic enslavement was a crime that was perpetrated against the expressed will of the masses of African people and their rulers throughout the continent and the, and, um, the diaspora. And all this needs to be seen also in the context that in the 18th century alone, between 283,000 and 300, 94,000 guns were imported into Africa each year by European enslavers and traders. In the whole um, period of transatlantic enslavement, it's estimated that 20 million guns were brought into Africa for the purpose of enslavement. So to sum up, I think that the historical evidence shows clearly that both the modes of transatlantic enslavement 
which is kidnapping, instigation of wars with the aim to produce slaves, um, all of which fundamentally also constituted um, a recurrent or continuous violation of African sovereignty and also the treatment of the thereby Ill illegally enslaved um, people that was constitutive to the running, this treatment constitutive to the running of the terror system of transatlantic slavery were clearly illegal by the laws of African people. So I'm coming to Europe now. In Europe also, uh, chattel slavery was not legal. Either slavery ha um, had come under restrictions to whether practices that were, that were constitutive of transatlantic enslavement were clearly legal, or slavery as such had been out outlawed. In Spain and Portugal, um, the Siete Partidas regulated slavery, and they included measures that protected slaves from abuse by their masters, permitted marriages, allowed a slave's ownership of property within certain limits, and provided for manumission. Um, and so, and also the Spanish and Portuguese laws limited the permissible grounds for enslavement, what we have already heard, capturing just war, inheritance, or self-bondage. Um, and that these provisions of the Siete Partidas were not enforced in the Spanish and Portuguese colonies does not change the fact that they were still the applicable legal basis enforced at that time. In England also, um, slavery had become illegal by the 15th century. That is why Queen Elizabeth I summoned Captain John Hawkins in 1562 concerning his voyage to Africa and expressed her concern, quote, lest any of the Africans should be carried off without their consent. Um, the British Queen's concern here reflected not only that she recognized the essential dignity of Africans as human beings, which is really irrelevant. It is legally irrelevant um, whether perpetrators accept reality or not, since it is also a general precept of law that um, legislative acts that are factually absurd are null and void. So even when European rulers tried to pass laws declaring Africans as not fully human, these laws were factually absurd and thus null and void. And, um, but beyond that, that is really what I wanted to say. Um, this statement by, by the British Queen Elizabeth I to Hawkins, um, she also expressed a principle in that um, by which the capture of people for the purpose of enslavement was considered illicit. And um, it's for that, those reasons also that in 1596, it was ruled that chattel slavery was incompatible with English law. Um, then later in 1667, however, motivated by the great economic gains expected from transatlantic slavery, a crown legal position was issued that declared Africans as goods. But still, for the reasons just um, given, um, that really such laws were factually absurd and in, in um, contradiction to the, to the legal and constitutional principles, most English courts um, still ruled in favor of freedom for those Africans who were able to seize the courts when they, when they were brought to England um, with their, their enslavers. Um, such as in the famous Somerset case, where it was assessed that English law is only recognized slavish servitude, a status that was deemed different from chattel slavery. In France, um, a royal proclamation of 1517 declared that France, the mother of liberty, permitted no slaves, 
and another legal dictum of 1607 confirms this. And it's because of this that most of the parliaments in France refused to register the royal uh, slavery edicts, the Code Noirs. These Code Noirs does, um, th therefore never really, never entered into legal force, but they were illegally carried out throughout the centuries of transatlantic slavery. And it's for that reason also that the French court in those few cases when enslaved Africans were able to reach them, set them free, and in some cases even rewar rewarded them reparations. And um, as Professor Shepard um, has mentioned in my introduction, is on these grounds also that near um, the international movement for reparation put in that um, that claim against France that is now has been judged as um, admissible by the European Court of Human Rights. Rights that what was done was without um, legal basis, and even then the courts recognized that that, that enslavement was illegal. Um, so um, to sum up from that, uh, we need to see that general principles of law recognized by civilized nations are one of the primary sources of international law, and they are derived from the vast majority of national legal systems. So if a conduct is permissible in the vast majority of national legal systems, it is also permissible by international law. If a conduct is illegal in the vast majority of legal systems, it is violating a general principle of international law and thus illegal. So I hope that from this short presentation, it became clear that the conducts that were constitutive of transatlantic enslavement and slavery were illegal in the vast majority of legal systems of that time whether European or African. In India and China, too, the legal regulations followed the same lines. The reason for enslavement were limited to self-bondage, just war captivity or punishment for grants, basically. And there were also legal safeguards to protect um, the servant people as uh, slaves against torture and mistreatment. Um, historically, also, in European law, doctrine, and practice, the recognition, recognition of general principles of law went hand in hand with that of Jus Kogans, um, which is traced to the period when the natural law doctrine was developed. Jus Kogans is um, law that cannot be, um, that cannot be changed. Um, so that was, that was developed, the natural law doctrine, well before the 15th century and prevailing as being recognized as applicable law well into the 19th century. Crotius, that is one of the founding fathers of European international law doctrine, maintained that there existed certain principles which amounted to a use natural necessarium, a necessary natural law, which was natural to all states and that all treaties and customs which contravened this necessary law were illegal. That was at the time when transatlantic slavery had started already. Um, and in fact, um, hold on, I just lost track. Yeah, and, and, and in European law doctrine of the time, by the 16th century, also slavery was in fact a much discussed uh, subject and none of the renowned scholars were deemed, had deemed it legal without any restrictions. The majority rejected it or recognized serious boundaries imposed by natural law. That is why, according to Suarez, um, he uh, as one of the founding fathers of international law doctrine in Europe, 
he considered slavery only admissible as part of positive penal law, whereas he recognized liberty as part of natural law. David Torrey, another founding father, stated that according to divine and natural law, all men and people were equal partners, and was also specific in stating that sovereigns of indigenous rulers, that the sovereignty of indigenous rulers had to be respected in the same manner as that of Europeans. So I think that the evidence, as far as I'm concerned, is unambiguous that the conducts that were constitutive of transatlantic enslavement and slavery were legal by general principles of law recognized by civilized nations. That is it for me. Thank you so much, um, Nora. Thank you so much. Or I give the floor now to Dr. Mamadou Hebi for his presentation on transatlantic slavery. 1450 to 1550, you heard Judge Robinson say that there's a periodization and a rationale to the date in people's presentation. Dr. Hebbitt, you have the floor. Thank you very much, Professor Shepard, for giving me the floor. I would like to... Uh, thank the organizers for this opportunity that they are giving to me to share my views on the lawfulness of slavery or uh, unlawfulness of slavery uh, between 1415 and uh, 1650. So probably the first question that I need to address is why I divided, I decided to focus on this early stage of uh, colonial expansion. I decided to focus on this early stage of colonial expansion because the doctrines that are invoked during that period in order to justify uh, colonial expansion and slavery are completely different from those that are invoked uh, later. I'll leave the second section to my colleague and friend, Parvati Menon, who will be talking about it later. And as far as I'm concerned, I'll just focus on 1415 uh, to 1550. A key problem in investigating the question of the lawfulness or unlawfulness of slavery during the relevant time is that of determining to what methodology? How do we establish it in a way that will be convincing and clear for everyone? And that difficulty uh, is due to two main uh, points. The first one is the applicable law. And I'm very happy that uh, Nora already touched upon it uh, by clearly stating that European law cannot be considered or assimilated to international law. This might come as a shock to some of you because we all heard that international law is a European creation. Whenever they ask you what, uh, what was the status of a rule in international law in the 16th century, you cite Grotius, you go for Vattel, and uh, so forth. But I believe that there is a clear distinction between the theory of the conceptualization of a law and the norm itself. International law cannot be reduced just to the writing of Grotius and Suarez and the others, but it has to be taken as the norm that derives from social relations between political entities. And when we define it that way, then we can take into account both the practice 
the practice of all the entities involved. I mean by that uh, colonial powers the, uh, and the local political entities, in this case, the African uh, political entities. It is, however, clear that uh, the law applicable to determining the, law, the lawfulness of slavery cannot be contemporary international law. It has to be the law as it existed uh, at the moment when uh, this practice was taking place. The second issue that we have to address is that of the sources of this applicable law. I personally, because I dismiss doctrinal sources as the relevant source, I focus on practice. You have to look at the practice of the colonial powers. You have to look at the practice of the uh, slave trade companies. You have to look at the practice of the African uh, polities. You have to look at every type of practice that you can find, which may allow you to unveil the legal perceptions of the actors at that, uh, at that time. And then the second, uh, the third point that you need to consider is probably what is the conduct which you want to characterize as lawful or unlawful. Judge Robinson was saying that chattel slavery is a continuing process which starts from capture to enslavement and uh, forced labor. Uh, and that's true. But when you want to ask yourself what is the relevant conduct that you want to characterize as unlawful, uh, I have chosen just to focus on one aspect. So not as such forced labor, not the transfer, but just the capture, the deprivation of, uh, of uh, liberty. Because if you take the forced labor, you take the transfer, you have enough practice there which may tend to suggest that at least those colonial powers, those slave trade uh, companies and countries that were participating in them did not see any strong legal uh, difficulty with it. And since they distinguished between slavery at home and slavery abroad, then uh, there was, it was not inconsistent to have the Somerset case in the British, uh, in Great Britain, while at the same time, Great Britain was supporting slave trade uh, elsewhere. So for me, I will focus on the deprivation of liberty, the deprivation, the capture of the slave. I believe that this is where investigation can be uh, the most, uh, is the most promising. And there are three main reasons why I believe that uh, chattel slavery Although it was not uh, very much known during my relevant time frame, but because these were really the early stages of uh, slave trade, uh, three main reasons why I believe that uh, it was unlawful at that time. The first one, and it pertains to probably, uh, the first one is the limits, what I call the limits of the doctrine of natural slavery. There were two main doctrines, two main grounds in order to enslave uh, people and exact from them uh, forced labor during, colonial, during that uh, period. The first one was the doctrine of natural slavery in Europe. So the first limit of that doctrine 
is the fact that it was a purely European doctrine. The fact that uh, European uh, powers thought that there were some peoples who were so backward on the scale of human civilization that they had to be placed under the supervision as a former master for uh, their uh, civilization, for their education and uh, uh, civilization does not mean anything for polities that were existing outside Europe and had never heard about uh, this doctrine, let's just say adopting it. Okay. So this doctrine is purely limited. It is a European doctrine, but even within Europe, the doctrine of uh, natural slavery was harshly contested. It was hardly contested because it was not a doctrine which was in line with medieval canon law. It was a doctrine which had been borrowed from Aristotle, the uh, distinction between uh, the natural slave and the natural master, and it never, it was applied in a couple of instances with respect to the Canary Island. It was also involved in order to justify the Papal Bull of uh, 1493 but it never went beyond that. It was contested, and that's the reason why Spain had to uh, invoke, uh, organize juntas over and over again in order to assure itself of the lawfulness of its title to the Americas, because no one understood why you could be depriving free men just because you think that they, uh, they were a slave by nature. And the doctrine of uh, slavery by nature was rejected in 1538 by the Pope himself, who had brought it into medieval uh, uh, canon law in 1493 in the Papal Bulls. So that doctrine could not uh, really serve as a basis. When you read Grotius, uh, Victoria, Suarez, and all the other scholars we will discuss later, uh, Spain's conquest of uh, Latin America, you will see that no one gives uh, strong support to that doctrine. And even Spain, at the end of the day, started renouncing. The second, uh, so the limits of the doctrine of natural slavery are uh, one of the main reasons why I believe that slavery was not lawful. Because, and then the second ground, which was invoked for uh, enslaving, was the just force doctrine, and uh, Nora already referred, uh, referred to it. Under the just force uh, doctrine, if you wage a just war, you would be allowed to enslave your enemy in order to exact uh, vengeance or, uh, and to preserve yourself from uh, further attack. But this doctrine was extremely strict. The causes, of the, the, the causes of just war were limited and they were very, very difficult to satisfy. Now, was it purely a European doctrine? I believe that there may have been some aspect of the just war doctrine that could be found in other societies. Because I believe that this idea that when someone attacks you, you have the right to defend yourself and defend your property was something that also existed. Uh, in, in the African context. And to this respect, this could be considered as one general rule of, uh, 
international law opposable both to entities within Africa and uh, in Europe, and therefore all those involved in, uh, in, in slave trade. But when you take the Joshua Doctrine, it was not just self-defense, which was a lawful cause of war. There were other uh, grounds that were invoked in order to, as lawful cause of war, including the obligation to uh, facilitate predication of the gospel. And this is the kind of rule that you will automatically consider as being purely local in character and cannot be considered as automatically opposable to uh, local political uh, entities. But beyond the strict conditions, we also have to look at the practice of the just war doctrine. When I started looking at it from the 1415 uh, to 1550, I hardly found instances where uh, uh, jurisconsults who were consulted on the lawfulness of a specific war found that it was uh, the conditions were satisfied. In 1415, for the conquest of Tanji, it was considered as not satisfied. Later, for the conquest of uh, the Canary Islands, it was not considered as satisfied. In 1452, when Portugal starts to navigate around the African coast and makes a lot of wars, it was not considered as satisfied, to the point that the Pope retroactively passed the papal bull validating all the wars that were con uh, conducted uh, by Portugal uh, between 1452 and 1455. Yeah. So the Just War Doctrine also was never really considered uh, as a, a freeway. And when you look at it, the very nature of chattel slavery, which we are discussing, is incompatible with uh, enslavement following uh, a just war. Because you had to wait to be first attacked in order to be able to wage war lawfully and enslave subsequently. And this is not how uh, slave trade developed in, during that uh, period. I am not, I have to be uh, clear on that, I'm not excluding the hypothesis that there might have been some just war during that period. I'm just saying that that could not explain, that could not provide a rational basis to fertilization. Uh, it's just uh, impossible that the systematic capture of Africans throughout the country, throughout West Africa, were just the, uh, the result of just war. Some might say that there might have been wars between African polities and European came in support of their allies, but even there again, uh, more elements should be provided to prove it. So I will now start moving close uh, to my conclusion. And in conclusion, I would just say uh, probably two things. The main doctrines that were uh, invoked in order to uh, justify slavery during that period were not uh, relevant to justify the enslavement of Africans and uh, their uh, transfer to uh, to, to the Americas for uh, slavery purposes. But while present, preparing this presentation, 
I couldn't uh, stop of thinking, why are we really focusing so much on legality? Why are we really focusing so much on the existence of a prior rule which would be prohibiting slave trade before discussing the issue of uh, reparation? And I'm saying this for probably two reasons. The first one is that when you look at the matter purely from a thought perspective, at least in civil law tradition, the general rule is that every act of a person who causes the thought to another person obliges the first one to, to provide for reparation. It's the basic thought law that you find everywhere, everywhere. So you don't need to breach a specific obligation, a specific prohibition in order to be responsible for the thoughts that you cause to a third person. And then the second reason why I can't stop thinking about the question of the why of the lawfulness, it's the following. If I decide to shoot in the forest an animal and eventually turn out to be that it was a human being, it won't be a defense for me to argue that, oh, the person was, this was an animal that I shot and that's it. I won't get free for that. So even if Europeans believe in the 15th century that enslaving Africans was lawful or was just, was moral, nowadays everyone realizes that, no, you made a mistake. You made a mistake, and by making a mistake, an error, not a mistake, you made an error. If you made an error and that error caused prejudice to a third party, you have to prepare. So I believe that there are more ways into thinking about this issue than just the question of lawfulness, and I will stop here for exceeding my time. Well, you were just about in time. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Hebby. It is now time to give space to those who want to pose questions to our two presenters. But while you're thinking about that, and, and you're going to uh, post, um, I see them in the chat, but let me just say that um, Dr. Hebby's presentation clarifies the prevailing legal views and conceptions that existed at the time or at the beginning of transatlantic slavery between 1415 and 1550. It has addressed the methodological question of how to establish the existence and content of international law during the relevant period and analyzed the different frameworks governing the institution of slavery at that time, distinguishing between the doctrine of slavery by nature and the actual and the institution of slavery under the just war doctrine. It concludes that none of these established doctrines of Yosemite law could justify in a general manner, chattel slavery that started timidly after 1520 and became subsequently a large business. And Nora Whitman has argued that transatlantic chattel slavery was unlawful, that many of the African countries impacted by transatlantic chattel slavery were safe, even by European standards, and that transatlantic chattel slavery was different from African servile labor by the virtue of its total disregard for the humanity of the enslaved. She has refuted the European claim of African collaboration by citing the many acts of African resistance which she maintains signify that transatlantic chattel slavery was not accepted by Africans as normal and legal. So now uh, the floor 
is yours. And let me see if anybody has posed a question yet. No? So perhaps I will start off by posing a question to Dr. Uh, um, Hebe. So did the prevailing legal views and conceptions that existed during the late 1400s frame the context for transatlantic slavery? Uh, sorry, I didn't hear the beginning of the question. So. Okay, let me go again. Did the prevailing legal views and conceptions that existed during the late 1400s frame the context for transatlantic slavery? Uh, I think that these were the uh, concepts that they had in mind, that those who were conducting slavery were had in mind. That might, for instance, the concept of just war the concept of just war was something that probably Europeans had in mind when they were uh, already uh, fighting against the king of uh, Congo, Monomatapa, and uh, others in, the, in that region. These conceptions uh, existed, but to say that they provided a legal basis for uh, uh, lawfully enslaving as chattel slavery, that's where I just can see it uh, happening. As far as the doctrine of natural slavery is concerned, I have to point out that it was applied to the American Indians. It was applied to the American Indians for the Pope to uh, issue the Papal Bull of 1493, which decided that these people are so backward in the scale of human civilization. We will place them under the sovereignty of the Spain, of Spain and for their education and uh, civilization, and I'm really almost quoting from the book. So that idea also existed, but it was so controversial that no one actually would dare uh, advocating from it, for it, except Sepulveda in, uh, strongly in, in the beginning after 1520. And mm -hmm. even the book rejected it, so that could not also provide a really uh, relevant context. Mm -hmm. And to Nora, so if, if the illegality at the time is established, as you say, and you're, you're very clear, you're very clear in your presentation about this, what legal consequences could be attached to this then? What legal consequences? Dr. Whitman, you're muted. Um, maybe the... Uh, Good, yeah. there you are. Uh -huh. Did you hear my question? Yeah, I, I did hear it. Okay. Um, well, already, um, given that I assess that what we are dealing with is also a continued violation of international law, uh, a continued from that time violation of African sovereignty, um, that's really, if you, if you make that assessment, would make the contemporary present day international law mechanisms applicable for the entire entire period of, of, of time. So um, I would have to research into that more, but I think that, um, I mean, Britain, for example, signed the statute to the International Court of Justice. Given that Jamaica still has as the British Queen as head of state, that could not work. Jamaica would have to remove the, get out of the Commonwealth to be able to, 
to seize the International Court of Justice, or, you know, or something similar, because that is specifically in it that that um, that Britain cannot be taken um, before the International Court of Justice or other other institutions by countries that are part of the Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, given that that I make the assessment um, that it is that we are really dealing with a continued violation of international law, a continued violation of African sovereignty, and also the fact that um, that the people who were taken away have not been given the opportunity to return, nor the descendants. There have been judgments um, international in international law. I think the the Ameri- hold on. I think I can find that quickly. The American Court of Human Rights. Um, where is that now? Yeah, that that um, I cannot find it now. But it's it it basically says that as long as the victims um, kidnap victims in that case, I think it was the American Court of an American International Court. In any case, that as long as the the people who were kidnapped have not been returned, it is a continued violation. So mm-hmm. more research would have to be done, but um, I see this very relevant um, to, that, to That's very interesting. That's very interesting, Nora, because you're giving uh, more energy to the repatriation movement. Um, that's, that's very interesting. So I have two questions here. The first one, um, so I think either of you can answer. If state practice of the time contradicted stated principles against chattel slavery and enslavement, would this problematize a determination that the customary international law of the time prohibited these practices? And it's in the chat. If it's too long, if you didn't get everything, you can look in the chat. Um, I don't know. Maybe, um, Dr. Hebby, would you like to say that, although the next question is addressed to you specifically, Dr. Hebby, so Maybe Laura wants yeah. to continue. Uh, I would okay, say go, go ahead. Just in, a, in one or two lines for the first question, I would say that uh, the fact that a state practice is in contradiction with an existing rules of international law does not create any contradiction. States, and as human beings, have been breaching their obligations for for quite a while. And the fact that uh, probably what can be very interesting in such context as the court held it in Nicaragua is to look at the justifications that are provided in order to explain the contradictory practice and how it lines up with the established uh, rule. Uh, let me take just now the question that is directly addressed to me, which refers yes. to the something as the mistake doctrine. I'm not framing it as being the ground for accountability. I'm just saying that it can hardly be a defense. Saying that you didn't know that Africans were human beings and that they they had equal rights uh, at that time and that they should have been treated with dignity, I can hardly see this as a defense. I can hardly see it as a defense against uh, reparation because you are the one who decided to act on the basis of uncertain knowledge and to enrich yourself. So if you do that and later it appears that you were wrong, repairing is for me more than just a moral duty. 
and that's what I wanted to do. Uh, providing reparation is only more than a moral duty. And that's where, what I wanted to allude to. Okay. Well, there's a question direct, another question directly to you, Dr. Hebe. The modern expressions of enslavement and colonialism have destroyed former colonies today. It may have been a mistake. You were talking about mistake or an error. The enslaved. But will the quote-unquote mistake doctrine be enough to hold states accountable? Yeah, uh, that's the question that I was just uh, taking. Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, yeah. okay. so I was saying that it's not really a ground for accountability, but it's just saying that this kind of defense cannot be uh, listened to nowadays. Okay. Saying that, yeah, colonial for a former slaver say, uh, saying that slavery they didn't know that it was unlawful. They didn't know that Africans had uh, equal rights and dignity. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very, for me, this argument really isn't, doesn't make sense because if you decide to act upon uncertain and uh, uh, knowledge, you have to face the consequences. Mm -hmm. So there's a, I think we have time for just this one. Um, it's a Eurocentric view on the supposed legality of the transatlantic trade in Africans per state. What are some ways in which international law can be utilized to address the legacies or the afterlife of the transatlantic trade in enslaved Africans and slavery, particularly in the U.S.? Nora, would you like to take that one? It's in the chat. Um, you can have a look at it. Are you looking at it? Yeah, I read it, but okay. I don't know how much I can say to that already because um, for me it is clear that, that it was um, illegal and it's really on that that I'm working on. I'm sure that there are other, that there are other, other ways to, to, to forward and progress the, the reparation claim in the U.S. and elsewhere. But I see all of them as more weak than this um, this firmly answered claim that is that is, that that that, that um, is based on on this illegality that okay. I think is so. Maybe Dr. Um, Hebe can say more about it. Um, I, I I really don't um, don't know um, much. Dr. More. Hebe, you want to? How can international law be utilized to address the legacies or the afterlife of the slave trade and uh, slavery? Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. there is a role for uh, international law. There is a role for international law, but this requires the different uh, states to agree in a treaty, to agree first on the fact that uh, slavery was a crime against humanity, and you have some countries that are going into that recognition and also agree on uh, what is take, what is uh, needed in order to address the persisting consequences and implement them through a treaty. The difficulty mm -hmm. though would be for instance to try today to involve contemporary international law to remedy past wrong. Uh, mm -hmm. That was that could be difficult. But now, if you want to prove that at the same very, at that time, at the time when slavery occurred, 
it was unlawful then, then you need a lot of uh, research into state practice with uh, all these complex issues about what was international law at that time and, uh, and, 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 and et cetera. But I'm very happy that Nora started this research and I yeah. always read, uh, I read her book on state practice at that time with great pleasure. Mm -hmm. Let's follow up. Um, there's a, a question that I, I think um, continues the, you know, what you said before, and it is this, about the just war doctrine, you know? If the just war doctrine was the only legal framework that could justly and justify enslavement under international law between the time frame that you cover, 1415 and 1550, does it mean that we should check in each country, in each and every case, whether the conditions of the just war doctrine were met and tailor our findings accordingly. Does it also mean that it is impossible to make a finding as to the lawfulness of chattel slavery in inter international law in general? Yeah, I would say, yes, the just war doctrine was very, very contextual. You had to look at a specific war and determine whether there was a just cause of war and whether the person who was acting under uh, a just war, uh, who was waging a just war, had the right time, time fuel, and all these conditions. So it's not uh, very uh, easy to just use it in order to make a big statement. It's really not that easy. You will have almost to go to wars after wars to see whether the conditions were mm -hmm. fulfilled. But mm -hmm. the fact that uh, chattel slavery occurred at a broad, in such a broad scale uh, during that period, without an evidence that at that time Africans were waging wars throughout the continent, seems to suggest that the just war doctrine is not mm -hmm. enough. At okay. Yeah. We have two questions from UETV, TV, and here's one from the from the point of trans-civilizational uh, international law. How might Islamic practice inform our assessment of what international law required or is relevant? Um, so I think you will have to take that <laughs> based on what you cover, Dr. Hebe, no? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, okay. Islamic practice is uh, it's part of the elements of practice that we would have to look in order to see, because I believe that there were some African polities at that time which were influenced by Islamic doctrine. So if you cannot have access to their uh, practice because of, for instance, the fact that some were not uh, using, uh, did not write and did not record it, you can look at their, uh, uh, up to their Islamic doctrines and understanding in order to uh, infer what could have been their views uh, at that time. So Islamic practice would be extremely relevant, but in Islamic practice, even if you were enslaved under a just law doctrine, you were not deprived of your humanity. You were not deprived of your rights, and you could be free. Mm -hmm. As a free man, enjoying fully all uh, your rights. So that's, it's very, it's very, very, it's very relevant. Okay. Here's another question from UWITV. Um, the view of the late Dr. Frederick Pickling offers the view that European slavery was um, 
based on notions of, I think, primary and secondary delusion? Does such a view challenge any attempt to find legal framework for justifying chattel slavery? I throw that one to Nora. Well, I, I'm not sure that I understand what it is. Okay, let me read it again. No, I read it. I read it. But oh, I, okay, all right. Yeah. yeah. Um, what yeah. does it mean based on you, notions of primary and secondary delusion? Well, he was Dr. F um, Professor Frederick Pickling, the late Dr. Frederick Pickling, was involved in looking at mental illnesses and also the mental dimension, post-chattel enslavement. Oh created mental um, for the victims, but maybe also he's asking about the delusion of Europeans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, well, I get the question now. Um, I don't think that, that, um, that it can challenge uh, attempts to, uh, to find legal frameworks for, 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 for operations or justifying what, what, what happened because um, I mean, even if there were, if you go into to, into criminal like criminal cases, and somebody claims that he was delusional and therefore he cannot be found uh, guilty or something, that is something else. But here we are dealing still with states, and the conduct was was uh, perpetrated over centuries. And I mean, it is it is crazy, but I don't think that it can um, it cannot um, take away from the legal responsibilities still. And so far, they haven't claimed illusion anyway. <laughs> no. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, I think this one will have to be the final one. Is it rational, and maybe each of you can have a say on this, is it rational or moral to base an assessment of the legality of conduct on contemporary practice of state when that conduct is wrong based on commonly accepted standards of morality? Is the natural law the answer to the reparations analysis? And that will have to be the last question. Each of you can have a quick shot at that. Well, I think that if you're only arguing from natural law, it is easy, and that is what they are also doing. They will try to argue that it was not binding, it was not strong, and things like that. All of that natural law, even that it was um, part, seen at that time part of the applicable law that is, that, that yeah the, the, the law that is that is applicable um, that comes into it but um, I think everything that 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 yeah everything that can be assessed legally should be taken and not just this and this thank and you this. I think we have to leave it there because we just have a minute to the break so it's just left for me to thank everyone for being such a great audience asking your questions um, in this panel. Thanks again to Nora Whitman and Mamadou Hebi for their well thought out and delivered presentations and to the way, ways in which they fielded the questions. Thanks again to the audience for engaging with our speakers with your questions and feedback. Please join us for the next panel to be moderated by my friend Dr. Gay McDougall on part two of the same topic, tackling a later time period, of course. And you will hear from Parvati Menon, Michelle R. Pelding, and Patricia Vizio-Sellers. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you much. Thank you. Thank you.